Welcome back. Another Tuesday, another podcast. I had a very interesting week. It has presented me with an opportunity to talk about a topic that seems increasingly important, not only for Latter-day Saints, but for all Christians. I spoke of this incident briefly on Facebook and received many supportive responses. I thought I'd give a less of a Reader's Digest account here. Now, before I begin, I realized when I chose this career a quarter century ago that I might stir up a hornet's nest occasionally because of my beliefs. My books don't really pull any punches with regard to bearing testimony of the LDS faith. I mean, the whole premise of the Tennis Shoes Adventure series is that the Book of Mormon is true, right? These are time travel adventures that focus upon what I believe to be genuine historical settings. Sometimes the series focuses upon New Testament and even Old Testament settings, but the primary focus is still the Book of Mormon. This book, by the very nature of its existence, is a celebration of my testimony that this is a true account of the ancient inhabitants of the New World. I believe there were other ancient inhabitants of the New World who had no relation to Nephites or Lamanites necessarily, but that's beside the point. I obviously believe Nephites and Lamanites really existed. And these novels are a bullhorn of those convictions. So, as a natural result of my choice to write books that celebrate my testimony of the Church and its holy scriptures, I expected on occasion to confront those who were somehow disaffected from the Church and might reveal to me their bigotry and prejudice. Usually, this has taken place at settings where I was signing books. I recall once when Deseret Book was inside the University Mall in Orem, Utah, a man came up to me and spouted his hatred of Mormons and our church as if, being an LDS fiction writer, I was somehow an official representative of the religion, and he was expressing his vitriol directly to a general authority. I tend to respond very well in these situations. I normally just show empathy and say, I'm sorry you feel that way. The Lord loves you. I hope your feelings change, and I wish you the very best. Another time at a Costco, a gentleman came up to me and shouted, It is only through the Lord Jesus Christ that thou canst be saved. And I responded, That's exactly right. On that point, we're in total agreement. I was so quick on the draw on that occasion that the man looked befuddled and just wandered away without saying another word. At other times, it's, it's sometimes uh, they've tried to be more contentious, but I, I try never to participate. Back before we had caller ID, I received phone calls where people simply spouted profanity at me and hung up, and also occasions where I've received letters or emails condemning the themes of my books, the church, or my beliefs. Just part of the territory, right? But this week was the first time I experienced a new kind of bigotry at an actual public speaking event. To be honest, it's been a while since I've been the recipient of any prejudice like this. I used to be asked to speak at public schools all the time. My books were part of the advanced reading AR curriculums in the Utah school system, and I received a lot of phone calls or emails from kids wanting to interview me for a book report or some other way of getting extra credit. 
All of that really tapered off about 10 years ago. At some bureaucratic level, it was determined in the school systems of Utah that my books were too religious in nature and therefore inappropriate reading for the AR program. It took a year or two before I recognized that I wasn't receiving as many phone calls anymore from kids wanting to do book reports, nor was I being invited to address creative writing in Utah public schools. And what can you do? There's no getting around the fact that my books are indeed religiously oriented. I could hardly hide that fact, so I simply had to accept the new reality that my novels were no longer welcome reading material for extra credit, or that they were deemed inappropriate for junior high and high school reading curriculums. Books that focused on other religions were apparently okay. Jewish-centered books by Kayim Potak or books that offered a glimpse into Hinduism or Islam or Buddhism, but not the dominant religion of the populace. Not sure if the Left Behind series by Christian authors made it onto those reading lists or not. In other words, I'm not sure if Christian literature itself was banned or just LDS literature. Maybe someone who knows more about the bureaucracy of this kind of decision-making can enlighten me. Anyway, a very brave librarian at a middle school fairly close to where I live invited me to come speak to her reading class. Apparently, these were 20 to 30 kids who had a great exuberance for reading, and many had genuine ambitions to become professional writers. Not long ago, I used to give a lot of workshops to aspiring writers and storytellers, but always from the perspective of a Latter-day Saint, since my creative world and my religious world are so integrally entwined. About five or ten minutes into the discussion, I posed the question, where do great story ideas come from? This is often the first question that aspiring writers pose to me, so I wanted to get it out of the way early, because personally, I believe this is among the least important questions that an aspiring storyteller faces. Why? Well, I'll, I'll explain later. But after posing this question to the students, the first answer I received from one of the students was highly esoteric. A young lady proposed that ideas come from the firing of neurons along the synaptic conduits of our brain, or lofty words to that effect, which drew laughter from other students because of its profound use of vocabulary. Even the librarian said to me, see, these kids are a cut above the kinds of students that we normally have in this school. They read a lot. I continued to ask for suggestions about the source of ideas, and finally, I received the answer I was looking for. Inspiration, a girl shyly proposed. Bingo, I said. That's what I believe. That's the source of the firing of neurons in our brain. I explained that if we are willing to accept that concept as an artist, we open ourselves up to anything our Father in Heaven might be willing to give us. Then I paraphrased a scripture found in the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, I realized I was on the campus of a public school, but I was the invited guest with no desire to water down my opinion on such matters. Besides that, I knew that most, if not all, of my listeners were LDS, so I wasn't too concerned. Nevertheless, I asked, is everyone here LDS? 
I can't recall if one of the girls raised her hand or if it was just pointed out to me that a couple of the girls may not have been LDS. One of the girls sat in back, so I didn't see her face and wouldn't recognize it if I saw it today. But I said, well, then plug your ears or don't plug your ears. I mean, you live in this county where I'm sure you've heard this kind of stuff before, so take it as philosophy. Then I quoted from DNC 59 where it says, And in nothing doth man offend God, or against none is his wrath kindled, save those who confess not his hand in all things. In other words, great ideas come from him. And if we recognize that, it takes great pressure off the shoulders of artists to be. My personal belief is that all great ideas, in fact all ideas, period, come from God. And it's only when we refuse to acknowledge that that we get in trouble, rely on our own creative intelligence and the arm of flesh, and eventually, I believe many are destined to learn the harsh lesson that just as easily as ideas can be bestowed, they can also be taken away. Our creative juices can dry up, so to speak, and we find that great ideas simply don't come to our minds anymore. That is just as much God's doing as when the flow of ideas seems like a waterfall. Our challenge then becomes to discover the reason, but that's another discussion. It was just after I quoted that scripture from DNC 59 that one girl got up and whispered into the ear of another girl, and both girls boldly walked out of class. It was all done very dramatically. And because of the timing, it was obvious that they were expressing offense. And they wanted to make the point that they would not be forced to hear any further religious propaganda. I certainly noted the walkout as it occurred, but I didn't really even skip a beat with regard to my presentation. And we went on to discuss what I believe are many basic principles that prepare an aspiring storyteller for a professional career. I expressed my opinion that the most successful stories are those that come from experiencing life, not just reading books or watching movies, and that many novelists first worked in other professions, later utilizing the knowledge they gained in those professions to make their novels more believable and plausible. It wasn't until the bell rang that the librarian came up to me and apologized for the behavior of the two girls who'd walked out. It took a second to jar me back to the reality that that had occurred, and it struck me that it wasn't the walkout that was particularly memorable. It was the dramatic way it was done, ensuring that their personal offense was well known to every member of the class. I'd never really experienced that before at a public speaking event. I thought to myself, and I believe I expressed to the librarian, if a Muslim author had been invited to class and said, I love my religion, I love the Koran, and I believe that everyone's life would benefit by reading the Koran, that no student would have expressed offense. They'd have nodded and thought, that's a new perspective, an opinion I've never heard before. Good to know opinions like that exist. In fact, 30 years ago, I think that's precisely how everyone would have reacted, even to my religious insertions. It was common courtesy, 
It was a matter of respecting the opinions of everyone and accepting the idea that people exist in this world whose opinions may conflict with our own. And that's okay. We have something to learn from everyone. However, with regard to Christianity, and particularly with regard to the dominant religion in Utah, things have obviously changed. And these changes seem to be growing in intensity every year. Of course, I'm aware of recent challenges that many Christians have faced with persecution throughout the world. Since the year 2000, a spokesperson with Amnesty International estimated that over a million Christians across the globe have been killed, lost their lives, or been martyred because of their beliefs. I'm certainly aware of the challenges faced by Christians in the United States as well, persecuted primarily on a philosophical basis for the time being, having plaques and statues with the Ten Commandments removed from public settings, being told the political incorrectness of saying Merry Christmas or being discouraged to participate in Christian-themed clubs or Christian-organized prayer, especially on public property but really in any setting where it can be observed by those with other beliefs. I'm also very aware of the shooting that occurred in Roseburg, Oregon, at Umqua Community College on October 1, 2015, where nine students and faculty were killed and almost an equal number wounded by a gunman who asked the victims directly if they were Christian. If the answer was positive, he shot them in the head. A brilliant quote was offered by Armando Hall, who, as far as I can tell, is simply a normal citizen with a presence on social media. Anyway, he noted, Who was the bravest person in America? The second to admit to being Christian after the UCC shooter had murdered the first. A sobering thought. I thought of DNC 98, 13 and 14, which says, and whoso layeth down his life in my cause, for my name's sake, shall find it again, even life eternal. Therefore be not afraid of your enemies, for I have decreed in my heart, saith the Lord, that I will prove you in all things, whether you will abide in my covenant, even unto death, that you may be found worthy." Even with this terrible event in Oregon, we need to humbly recognize that around the world, Christians are enduring oppression and persecution at a level that we can scarcely imagine, and much of it is not being reported. Christians are being beheaded, burned alive, crucified, and tortured to death by the thousands, particularly in the Middle East and other third-world countries where reporters and cameras simply do not have access. I listened to a few graphic examples to illustrate the struggle. A taxi driver in Egypt was beheaded because he had a cross hanging in his windshield. Ancient churches in the Syrian city of Sadad were destroyed along with the lives of 45 Christians by U.S.-supported opposition military. At least 280 dead Christians were reported in the Central African Republic of the Congo after Muslim ex-rebels slaughtered them, quote, like chickens with machetes. Fifty Christians burned to death in their pastor's home in Nigeria. According to the Christian charity Open Doors, 
In Eritrea, located in the Horn of Africa, Christian men and women are being held in underground dungeons, metal shipping containers, and military detention centers. In North Korea, people were killed by machine guns in a local stadium in the city of Wonsan, while a crowd of 10,000 people, including children, watched the killings. This report went on to say how it's been extraordinary how Western governments have virtually ignored this crisis without much of a response. In October of 2013, it was reported that pre-deployment soldiers at Fort Hood were told that Christians, Tea Party supporters, and anti-abortion activists were a radical terror threat and that anyone found to be supporting these groups would be subject to discipline under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Now, I can't independently confirm this information. Much of it is a couple years old, but to be honest, I was becoming so disturbed by what I found that I didn't bother to explore the most recent atrocities. But I have no reason to doubt the veracity of what many of these reports are saying because I sense it in the air. Many other Christians and Latter-day Saints sense it too. By comparison, the apparent rudeness I experienced last week in the classroom seems rather trivial. Just a couple young girls who took advantage of an opportunity to garner attention by expressing offense. Honestly, with my posting of this podcast, I've probably garnered more attention countering this event than these girls garnered for walking out. Unless they're able to capitalize on it through gossip to friends or reports to the faculty. I mean, this was only a couple days ago, so I don't know. Maybe I haven't yet felt the full ramifications. I was invited in a couple of weeks to speak to a much larger audience at this same school about creative writing and storytelling. We'll see if that event is canceled or if someone approaches me with instructions to leave out the religious stuff. The religious stuff comes so natural to me and is so interconnected with my creative works that I might find it rather difficult to separate it out, but I might preface such sentiments a little better to prepare my listeners. What I won't do is be silenced with regard to my religious beliefs. Obviously, my choice of writing adventure novels for Latter-day Saints has already limited my opportunities for selling books to students in Utah, which directly affects my ability to earn a living. Other factors also contribute, but the important point I wanted to make is that the courage it will take to remain Latter-day Saints, to identify ourselves as faithful LDS, and as believers in Jesus Christ, will not get any easier. I suspect we've crossed some kind of line with regard to that identification over the past decade or two. I mean, members of our church have always faced detractors and anti-Mormon propaganda from certain sectors. Even when I was serving my mission in Florida in 1983, I remember reading announcements on the marquees of other Christian churches that advertised a nightly showing of The Godmakers, which was a popular anti-LDS film at the time. So anti-Mormon sentiment has always existed. What I don't think many members of our church fully appreciate 
is how quiet it's been for the last four or five decades for members of our faith, how we've been allowed to flourish in relative peace and obscurity for an entire generation. When I grew up in the 70s, I wasn't Latter-day Saint, yet even I had an understanding of the high respect members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints received in many circles. Church members were respected for their strong family values, their commitment to living the word of wisdom, refraining from consumption of tobacco and alcohol, and for their honesty and forthrightness in other facets of life. I heard these things. I've heard these things often since I have joined the church. I don't hear them as much anymore. Maybe my mind is just focused elsewhere, and many Americans and the citizens of other nations still feel that kind of general respect. But over the last few years, there's no doubt that anti-LDS voices have become louder in volume. Not unlike other Christians, we're attacked on all fronts for our stances. Most of the time, the exact same stances we've always had. But the world around us is changing, and with those changes, tolerance for our beliefs and values is changing too. More and more, we are viewed as bigoted, narrow-minded, racist, homophobic, and even dangerous. We defend our values in forums we never thought we'd ever have opposition. The institution of marriage, the Boy Scouts of America, the sanctity of motherhood, and the freedom of conscience. Certainly other Christian denominations are experiencing much of the same hateful rhetoric. In that regard, Latter-day Saints feel a genuine bond of unity with other Christian faiths. And we have a great desire to join with them, to stand up for our beliefs. Unfortunately, there are times when these other faiths actually feel uncomfortable standing side by side with us. Many of them still find it difficult to accept us as one of them. Those old prejudices that led to advertising showings of the Godmakers on their church marquees is still alive and kicking. The point I want to make is that none of this should surprise us. The Church of Jesus Christ, the authorized gospel as declared by his authorized representatives on earth, has rarely experienced the kind of quiet respite that we have experienced over the last generation. Vitriol and persecution are much more the standard treatment that members of the true church should expect while striving to live their faith. Now, I don't want to be some kind of prophet of doom and gloom. In fact, I'm not a prophet at all, and I hope I'm dead wrong and that our church will continue to enjoy an abundance of great press, peace, and that we reap a full harvest of souls throughout the world. In fact, I believe this will take place, but perhaps it will take place in an atmosphere of greater intolerance than we are used to experiencing. A sifting of the wheat and tares was expected. A further sifting is inevitable. I suspect it will not become easier to remain a Latter-day Saint. It will become more difficult. The sacrifices that we will be asked to make in our daily lives will become ever more pronounced. But 
Remember the words of Joseph Smith in Lectures on Faith. A religion that does not require the sacrifice of all things never has power sufficient to produce the faith necessary unto life and salvation. We're here to be tested. We're here to see if we will do all things which our Father in heaven may require of us. I don't have any more confidence than you that I'll be able to withstand the full crucible of the Lord's refining fire. But I know this, if I'm not staying close to the Lord, if I'm not committed to gospel basics, I don't stand a chance. I don't have a prayer. I will fall, and I presume so will many of you. Therefore, I urge us all to immerse ourselves in daily scripture study and prayer in temple attendance, in practicing family home evening. Same list as always, but do it. Take nothing for granted, particularly your testimony of God and His church. Feed it, nurture it, and challenge it every day by increasing your devotion to it. Remember, you do possess some powerful tools that others in this world do not possess. The gift of the Holy Ghost, and the voice of a living prophet of God, whose word will guide us in times of greatest trial, should those times ever emerge. And I'm sure he would remind us of verses like 1 Nephi 22:17, which says, God will preserve the righteous by his power, even if it so be that the fullness of his wrath must come. Wherefore, the righteous need not fear. I wish for you God's greatest blessings and for his protecting hand to be upon you and upon your families. May it so be is my prayer. Here's wishing you another great week of service in the kingdom of God. This is Chris Heimerdinger. This is Forever LDS. Signing off.